Good morning. Today I'll be reading from Genesis 49, verse 28, to Genesis 50, verse 26. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Heatite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Heatite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Heatites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many days are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. And in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he has made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous morning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizram. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Heatite to possess as a burying place. After he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. 
When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Jesus, so Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 15. We read this. Then I said in my heart, the preacher speaks, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Friend, barring the return of Christ, the day of your death is both certain and inescapable. And as King Solomon observed, The wise dies just like the fool. And so the question before you today, no matter your present age, is not if you will die. The question is how will you respond to the inevitable reality of your death? When we're young, what do we do? We ignore death, right? When we're old, what do we do? Well, we spend billions on products and procedures designed to mask the physical symptoms of its approach. And when death finally comes, we employ all manner of euphemisms for that of which we do not speak. So reading the obituaries this week, I read over and over and over again, he departed this life. 
or she passed away. I had to work hard to find anybody who simply said, he died or she died. I mean, that's what happened, right? That's why they're in the obituary. So, so why are we so uncomfortable to acknowledge and face and speak about death? Why is that so hard for us? Well, for one, I would argue it, it makes us uncomfortable, right? It reminds us that we're not immortal, we're frail, we're, we're created from dust and one day we will return to dust. So, so even if you live what some might say is a culturally noteworthy life and you happen to be found on the cover of Time magazine, you are at best, friend, like the finale of a fireworks show or like the blossoms on a cherry tree in my front yard in the spring. You're here today, you're gone tomorrow. Psalm 103 verse 15, as for man... As for you, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. You you may experience in this life before you die all manner of joys and blessings. This morning I, I tell you that none of them will alter the fact that your life is fleeting, your life will be full of tribulation, and your life will end in their grave. That's, that's not pessimism. I hope you realize that. That's simply the truth. That's the reality. So how will you respond to that? If that's what's true... Question's not if, but, but how we respond to that. Some try to ignore suffering and death by staying positive, right? Just don't think about it. Some try to distract themselves from suffering and death by staying busy. Some try to forget suffering and death altogether with, with a mind-altering drink or drug of choice. And some completely lose all hope in the midst of suffering and death. And they take their own life. The Word of God reminds us this morning that the God who created the world and everything in it, he calls us to a radically different response to the reality of our suffering and our death. And in these two chapters, Genesis 49 and 50, God calls us to respond in this way, to respond to the sorrows of life by resting in the God who saves. That's what the Christian faith is really all about. Responding to the stars of this life by resting in the God who saves. And, and when I speak of faith defined according to the Bible, I'm not talking about some kind of blind belief that everything will just magically work out in the end. That, that's not faith. That's a leap into the dark. Nor, nor am I, when I speak of faith, arguing that if you're a halfway decent person, that somehow you can look forward to peace on the other side. That's not how the Bible speaks of faith. That's not how I'm speaking of faith. Faith responds to the suffering of this life, death included, by resting on the God who saves. That's what faith does. It rests on the God who saves. This whole book that we're concluding this morning, it began with life, didn't it? The world as it was meant to be. What does it end with? With death. 
began with life. It ends with death, the world as it is today. But, but that all too familiar picture of suffering at the end of this book is not hopeless for the people of God. It's full of hope for the context of their suffering at the end of this book. It serves to reveal the content of their faith. Think about that. The context of their suffering reveals the content of their faith. This conviction of things unseen that enables them and can enable us to rejoice in the midst of tribulation. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on three contexts of suffering in the final section of this book. And in each one of them, I'm going to highlight a different conviction. So in every context, the conviction that calls us to respond to the sorrows of this life by resting in the God who saves. So here's the first context. Point number one, context one, the sorrow of death. The sorrow of death. If you've been with us in our study of Genesis, you hopefully notice that Jacob's instructions to his sons in 49, 29 through 33, we read this morning, they they mirror something. They mirror his words in Genesis 47. He repeats these burial instructions. They're like bookends over all the blessings on his children that come in the middle. And those bookends draw our attention to something, to the reality of Jacob's death. Look at verse 29, chapter 49. What does he say to his sons? I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. You know, the, the Bible doesn't ignore or forget or distract us from the reality of death. It doesn't do any of those things. Five five times in as many verses, you'll find the word bury. They buried Abraham. They buried Isaac. They buried Rebekah. I buried Leah, Jacob says. And then he adds, and you're about to bury me. So Jacob's words remind us of the reality of death. Not not just death in general, but your death and my death. His grandfather couldn't escape it. His father couldn't escape it. Jacob can't escape it. And we will do no better, friend. You can't escape death. Why is that the case? When a word, it's because of God. Why can we not all escape death? It's because of God. When when the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God in Genesis 3, he justly imposed the penalty of death on them, right? And on their descendants. Because anything less would have been a, a violation of justice. A denigration of his holiness. In other words, the sorrow of death reminds us of the seriousness of sin. That's its intent. Sin is not a light matter, and that's why death is in the world. It's the reason that the the sustainer of life will one day cease to uphold your physical life. The reason for that, death, is because of sin. Even for the people of God, notice this. 
The hour of death is an hour of sorrow. If you look at verse 31, Jacob can't even bring himself to speak of burying Rachel, his beloved wife. And when Jacob breathes his his last, what what does Joseph, the paradigm of biblical faith, spontaneously do? What does he do? He falls on his father's face and he weeps, right? And in chapter 50, verse 3, the Egyptians join him in weeping for 70 days. And in chapter 50, verse 10, Jacob's family and the Egyptians lament his death with what? A very great and grievous lamentation. Mourning for another seven days. And their expression of grief was so great that that it caught the attention of all the surrounding peoples, the Canaanites, who said, what in verse 11? This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. So the Bible reminds us of the reality of death. We can't escape it. And the sorrow of death, even for the people of God. And yet, in that very context, in that context, the sorrow of death, what do we see there? We see the content of genuine faith. Notice the precision and the repetition in Jacob's burial instructions. So he doesn't just say, hey guys, bury me with my fathers. What does he say? Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. Matthew, why are you so excited about Ephron the Hittite? I don't even know who Ephron the Hittite is. Well, let me explain. Both the cave and Ephron the Hittite show up again in verse 30 and again in verse 32. And then, in case you missed the cave and Ephraim the Hittite, the entire thing shows up, again, quoted almost word for word, in verse 13 of chapter 50, summarizing what Jacob's sons did for him. And and that repetition isn't designed to exhaust us. That's deliberate. That's designed to inform us, to, to draw our attention to the content of Jacob's faith in the context of the sorrow of his death. So, so what did the Lord promise to Abraham? What did he promise Abraham? In Genesis 13. And then again to his son Isaac in Genesis 26. And, and to his son Jacob in Genesis 28. What, what did he promise them? He promised them to give them the land of Canaan, right? The Lord promised to do that. Over and over and over again. So, so what is Jacob's request to be buried with his father in the land of Canaan, declare. What what is Jacob declaring by virtue of that request? He's declaring to his sons and all who are listening, God is going to do what God said he will do. He's declaring that. When he makes a promise, he keeps a promise. Because he's a faithful God, friends. His word is, is worthy of your trust. And generations later, God did exactly what he promised he would do. He brought the Israelites into the land of Canaan. But but notice this. We don't have to wait a couple hundred years to glimpse a foretaste of God's faithfulness. You you may remember that that God didn't just promise Jacob land. In Genesis 35, 11, what did he say to Jacob? He said, kings shall come from your own body. Kings from you, Jacob. In, In other words, Jacob, the royal dominion that that Adam and Eve exercised over creation in the garden and lost because of their sin is going to be restored. That royal dominion restored through you and your descendants. You, You know what all the details? This is amazing. Of Jacob's funeral procession 
and his burial at the beginning of chapter 50 reveal? It's not, it's not just filler. There's never, nothing in Scripture is filler. Get that out of your mind. They reveal that Jacob received a burial fit for a king. Fit for a king. The embalmment, right? The 70 days of mourning. The fact that, verse 7, all the elders of the land of Egypt, think about that, went up to Canaan. The chariots and horsemen, the very great company in verse 9. Those aren't trivial details, friends. Those are signposts to the faithfulness of God that he is going to keep that royal promise to Jacob, to his descendants. In the very hour of death, when sorrow abounded, God God demonstrated once again, not just to the Israelites, but to all the Canaanites who watched the whole thing go down, I will do what I say I will do. I'll restore to you and your descendants the, the dominion that sin destroyed. In other words, for Jacob, a single cave in a single field functioned as a down payment on the faithfulness of God. And both the tomb and the procession up to it reminded all who saw it that God will do what God says he will do. Friends, amidst the sorrow of death today, the Lord still invites us to direct our attention to a tomb. But the evidence of God's faithfulness is no longer the procession leading up to it. It is the Son of God who walked out of it. See, Jacob's tomb is still full. All who die as followers of Christ are still waiting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in glory, for the resurrection of the just. When those who have died in Christ, Christ returns, will receive what? Imperishable bodies and reign with our Savior for all eternity. That's why Jacob's tomb is still full. But Jesus' tomb is empty. Because as the firstborn from the dead, his resurrection is a foretaste of our own, is it not? Assuring us amidst the real sorrow of our death that God will do what he said he will do. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Hear that. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's not just a historical fact that Christians get excited about once a year because they just want to kind of throw it a bone. Nonsense. It's a present assurance of the faithfulness of God. That's what the resurrection is. So so don't belittle God's word of promise. Don't doubt what he says to you. When he speaks, believe him. When he commands, obey him. His words are trustworthy and true because he's a faithful God. Context one, the sorrow of death. Conviction one, God is faithful. God is faithful. Context two, the evil of sin. What do we see here? Well, with Jacob out of the way, Joseph's brothers fear that he is finally going to avenge on them 
all the wrongs that they did to Joseph 40-some years ago when they abducted him, when they sold him into slavery. And it's hard to tell if you look at verse 17 of chapter 50, it's hard to tell if this story (laughs) that they make up is true or not. I, I think if you look at verse 15, there's a strong suggestion here that the entire thing Jacob told us to say is fabricated because they're not driven by faith in God. They're driven by the fear of Joseph. That tends to not lead to good places. But regardless, their words reveal something, and I want us to focus on this, because their words reveal their ignorance of the true wellspring of Joseph's forgiveness. They're ignorant of something here that's very important to not be ignorant of. So so they think that Joseph what? That he restrained himself for the last 17 years while Jacob was in Egypt for Jacob's sake. Really? When reality, what do we quickly see in his response? We see that Joseph had already forgiven them for God's sake. So look at verse 19, his his tearful reply here to their fear and their request for forgiveness. It's a profound statement, one of the most profound statements in the entire book of Genesis. And I would argue it's a summary of the whole. You want a two-sentence ultimate spark notes? What is Genesis all about? Well, look at this. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Friend, what are we Think about this. What are we doing when we either passively, I'm just not going to talk to you, just ignore you, or actively, I'm going to go after you, try to punish people who've hurt us? When we seek vengeance, when when we retaliate passively or actively, because we're creative, we know how to do it so that we don't get called out too quickly. What are we doing when we're doing that? Well, friend, when when we do that, We're playing God. We're playing God. Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Not vengeance is yours, have fun with it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Joseph refused to punish his brothers, in other words, not because he feared Jacob, but because he feared the Lord. What did he say? Am I in the place of God? No, I'm not. But but think about who's saying that, right? What's Joseph at this point? Some little peon who couldn't do anything if he wanted to. No. He's the second most powerful man in one of the most powerful countries in the world at that time. But what does he know? What's the conviction that's in his heart in the midst of the context of all this evil and sin coming at him? I'm not God. I'm not God. The Lord is God. He's the judge. He's the one to to whom you guys are accountable. There's a serious application here for you and me. 
And that's this, friend. You will never be able, you will never be able to maintain a posture of forgiveness toward those who hurt and sin against you unless you believe with all your heart that they are ultimately accountable to God. You'll never be able to forgive apart from that. And know this, the justice of God ensures one of two outcomes. When somebody has sinned against you, when when evil and sin are coming at you, okay? Either one, they will be punished for their sin. The justice of God will see to that. Or Christ will receive the punishment for their sin. Either way, what never happens in the kingdom of God. Guilt never goes unpunished. Which frees us to what? To trust God as the judge instead of trying to do his job for him. Now, that doesn't mean we, we refuse to use God's word, right? Because I hear plenty of people say, oh, don't judge. Don't judge. Not judging, not looking, not caring, not thinking. Uh, not quite. It doesn't mean we refuse to use God's word to evaluate the conduct of the people around us. It does mean that we lay down our pride. We lay down our bitterness. We lay down our self-righteous spirit. And we humble ourselves before the judge of all the earth who always does what is right. Because it's only when we trust him to be the judge, we're free to forgive our enemies instead of punishing them. That's the first reason Joseph could forgive his brothers. But there's a second. It's not just that he trusted the judgment of God. He also forgave them because he trusted the providence of God. He knew that, that God had used this evil and sin committed against him to what? To accomplish unimaginable good. So what's the connection? Well, think about this. It's kind of like the reverse of one of those, you know, cable TV commercials. If Joseph hadn't been sent to Egypt, he couldn't have been present in Pharaoh's court. And if he hadn't been present in Pharaoh's court, he couldn't have interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And if he hadn't interpreted Pharaoh's dream, Pharaoh would never have authorized him to store up abundant grain during the seven years of plenty. And if Pharaoh hadn't done that, Joseph's life and his family's life and all the Egyptians' lives and and all the people in the surrounding regions would not have survived the seven years of famine. Joseph knows that. So think very carefully here. Should Joseph's brothers have sold him into slavery? No! I'm a little concerned that took so long. Should anyone commit grievous evil and sin against their brothers? No, absolutely not. Did God force his brothers to do it against their will? No. Thank you, John. (laughs) Were Joseph's brothers morally accountable to God for what they did? Yes. But did God plan it? And did God design it? And did God not just transform it and reshape it, but actually intend it from the very beginning to accomplish exceeding good for God's people? Yes. And therein lies the comfort of providence, friends. Hear that. God isn't surprised when hard things come your way. 
He, he doesn't have like, oh no, we've got like three alarm bells going off in different regions of the church. Oh my, okay, we're going to start with this one. No, no. He's not taken off guard. He's, he's never forced to spontaneously react or thrown off his groove when, when evil assails you. In the mystery of his will, it's part of his perfect plan to do you good. That's a bold statement. I, I love how the Holman Bible translates verse 20. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good. To bring about the present result, the survival of, of many people. Which means Joseph's story is, is an incredible testimony of the providence of God. But, but hear this, friend. It is not the most definitive statement. What Joseph's brothers did to him was evil. It's also not the greatest act of evil that mankind has ever committed. What, what is the greatest act of evil that mankind has ever committed? It's the crucifixion of the Son of God. Not the abuse of Joseph. No life was more precious than God's. No death was more grievous than God's. And and yet, what does the Apostle Peter say? Acts 2 verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Question, friend, who betrayed and scourged and beat and crucified the eternal Son of God? Wicked men like us who resists his rule, despised his authority, we delivered him up to Pilate to be killed. But why was he delivered up? He was delivered up, what? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God wasn't reacting to the greatest act of evil ever committed in the history of the world. Friends, it was part of his perfect plan to do all mankind good by offering to them free salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The greatest evil we ever committed proved to be the greatest good God ever accomplished. Think about that. Because it's that sight, that the tide of eternal salvation flowing to us through the cross of Christ, that compelled the Apostle Paul to say what in Romans chapter 8? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Why, why could Paul say that? Because he saw Jesus. He, he saw the greatest evil that had ever been committed in the entire history of the world. And he saw that through that very evil, God intended it. God planned it. God used it for the greatest good the world has ever seen. He didn't just say, you know what? I think it'd be great if God worked all things together for good. Hey, Romans, believe it. Ready? God works all things. No. He saw Jesus. And he knew it. Notice, though, he doesn't say all things are good, right? What did Joseph, 
no worries, guys, it's all good. Nonsense. His brothers meant real evil. They did real evil. But what did God do? He intended it for good to bring about the salvation of many. Friend, every one of us in this room has both experienced evil and committed evil. As as David Paulson says, we trouble our trouble. And I don't know, I don't know how God will use all of those sorrows for the good of those who trust and obey him. And you, my friend, should be very suspicious if anyone comes to you saying they've figured it all out. Oh, don't worry. Don't be sad. See, see, I know exactly how God's going to use this for good. It, it kind of works like this. It all makes sense to my little human mind. And, you know, because it makes sense to me, it must be true for God. Very suspicious. Why? Because we're dealing here with mystery. Right? With a God whose, whose ways are higher than our ways. And whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We, in other words, we know the what. God means it for our good. We don't know the how. So, so we see the how in the story of Jacob's family, but we don't always see it on our own, right? How is God going to use that for good? I can't see it. But friends, hear this. Please hear this. We don't trust God because we see the how. We trust God because we see Jesus. Don't decide, is God worthy of my trust based on what you can understand of his mysterious good providence in your life. You do that, you've made yourself God and God the one who has to answer to your reason. Don't do that. Trust God because you see Jesus. For in Jesus' story, God makes the definitive declaration, the loudest possible statement, that he is sovereign. And his ways are good, even when it seems like nothing could get worse. Context to the evil of sin, conviction to God is sovereign. God is sovereign. So what do we have here before we prepare to conclude? When the sorrow of death, God is faithful. And the evil of sin, God is sovereign. But I'm going to give you one more reason, because there's one more reason in this chapter to respond to suffering by resting in the God who saves. So here's the final context. The wait for deliverance. The wait for deliverance. Notice, Joseph lives long enough, look at the end of the chapter, to see his great-grandchildren. That's pretty cool. But he doesn't live long enough to see his family return to the promised land. So what does he do? What does he do? Does he arrogantly conclude that the only things that are real are things he can see. No. You ever done that? It's easy to do that. He doesn't do that. He strengthens his brothers in verse 24 while he is waiting for deliverance. What does he say? I am about to die, but God will visit you. And bring you up out of his, this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say that? Why would he say, I'm about to die, but God? Well, think about it. It's because for the last 70 years of his life, Joseph had been the source of what? Provision and protection for the nation of Israel. 
for the people of Israel. God used him. And it was his relationship with Pharaoh that that enabled his entire family to thrive and multiply in the land of Egypt. So what does Joseph do right before he dies? He takes his brothers, he takes his family, and he says, guys, I'm not going to be here anymore. But that is entirely okay because what's been going on here isn't about what a great Savior I am. It's about how good God has been to you and God is going to continue to be to you. Are you tempted, friend, to think in the wait for deliverance that if that check doesn't come through, if that friend leaves you, if that spouse says it's over, that all hope is lost? That's your temptation. Hear what Joseph says to his brothers. I'm about to die, but God but God will visit you. He's the one you should lean on. He's the one who has been your shepherd all the days of your life and will be your shepherd all the days of your life. And one day, guys, he's going to bring you out of this place and take you home. Joseph believes the Lord's promise, just like Jacob, his father, right? Even though he died waiting for the fulfillment. And of course, we know something Joseph didn't at that point, that some 400 years later, God did exactly what that. What did he do? He visited his people by sending a servant, Moses, who, who led them out of slavery in Egypt and back to the promised land. But even with that knowledge, hear this, the exodus from Egypt wasn't the end of the story. There was a, there was a far greater fulfillment of, of Joseph's prophetic word in verse 24 that was yet to come, another day. When God would visit his people in an even greater way. Only this time it wasn't through the words of a prophet. It was through the person of his son. Jesus Christ. Because through his life and death and resurrection. Jesus has what? He has made a way for every one of us to be saved. Not just from physical exile. But first and foremost from spiritual exile. He's made a way for sinners like you and me. To be forgiven and and reconciled to our Father. So friend, if, if you will turn away from your sin, if you'll repent of doing life your way, and turn toward God, and follow Jesus Christ, and do life his way by faith, then what does God promise you? He promises you that on the day you die, you will receive the gift of eternal life. The reward he's promised to all who trust in Christ alone for salvation from sin and death. Because we are too are awaiting a promised land. A new heavens and a new earth to which the land of Canaan ultimately pointed. What does the author of Hebrews say? Speaking of the Jewish patriarchs and their descendants. Chapter 11 verse 39. And all these... Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the whole nation coming out of them. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Think about that. What's the something better God has provided for us. It's all the blessings of the new covenant, right? The eternal salvation and redemption that is ours because of Jesus. 
So why does Hebrews say to the that the Israelites did not receive what was promised? Well, because being made perfect, hear this, for them as well as for us, it awaits the end of the age when the Lord returns and grants imperishable bodies, new, immortal bodies to all who have died in faith, Jacob and Joseph included. Which means what? Right now, like them, we're still waiting. We're still longing. We're, we're still groaning. But friends, hear, hear this. That day is coming. It's coming. The, the resurrection of Christ guarantees the return of Christ. And the day when Jesus finally brings us home. 2 Peter 3.13 But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're waiting for a, a return back to the Garden of Eden where life is as it was meant to be, only this time it's better because we won't be able to sin. The resurrection of Christ assures us, assures you, Christian, that the God who visited us once will visit us again. He's alive right now and he's coming back. So we may be waiting for deliverance, lying in a coffin like Joseph, but, but know this, your salvation, if you are in Christ, is on lockdown right now. It's certain. And so we embrace the Lord's call in Romans 12, verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Praying what? Oh no, I don't know if I can make it. <laughs> no, Revelation 2220. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and take your people home. Context three, the wait for deliverance. Conviction three, salvation is certain. Genesis ends with these three contexts in view. The sorrow of death, the evil of sin, and the wait for deliverance. And Christian faith, in contrast to every other faith in this world, responds to all of that by resting in the God who saves. Why? Because in the sorrow of death, God is faithful. In the evil of sin, God is sovereign. And in the wait for deliverance, salvation is certain. That's why we respond to the suffering of this life, death included, by resting in the God who saves. So when we feel the weight of suffering and sorrow pressing down upon our souls, we don't ignore it, we don't distract ourselves from it, we don't run away from it, we don't lose hope in the midst of it. What do we do? We rest on the God who saves. In 1964, Robert Edinger published a book called The Prospect of immortality, in which he made a case for preserving human corpses in liquid nitrogen in the hope that future science would be able to bring them back to life. And 12 years later, the Cryonics Institute was founded. It's a nonprofit membership organization made up of people seeking, quote, to pursue cryonics prospect of immortality for themselves and their families. And if you get on their website, you will see 
that for a mere $28,000, they offer the following benefits. This would be funny if it wasn't so sad, friends. This is the best we can do to save ourselves. For 28K, we offer you another chance at life, renewed youth and health, reunion with loved ones, and the possibility of an unlimited lifespan to live all your dreams. And then they say, imagine a world free of disease, death, and aging. At the Cryonics Institute, we believe that day is inevitably coming, and cryonics is presently our best chance of getting there. If if the book of Genesis says anything, you know what it says? Technology will never deliver us from the vanity of this life because the root of our problem isn't scientific, it's spiritual. Death didn't come into the world because of medical ignorance. It came into the world because of spiritual arrogance, which means that hope for a world free of disease and death and aging will never be found in a tank of liquid nitrogen. It will only be found where? In the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the only place you can find that hope, friend. It's found in the assurance that all who follow him and share in his tribulation will not fail to share in his triumph. Romans 6 verse 5. For if we have been united with him, Jesus Christ, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So how are you going to respond to your suffering and death? Don't ignore it. Don't distract yourself from it or lose hope in the midst of it. Respond to it by resting in the God who saves. Rest in Jesus Christ because it is only in Jesus that you will find joy in the midst of your sorrow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed by all you have taught us and all you have shown us about yourself as we have studied this book for many, many months. And on this Easter morning, we thank you, Father, that you end this book with a scene that is oh so familiar to our continued experience of life in a fallen and broken world. You end it by speaking to us, speaking into the sorrow of death, into the evil of sin, into the wait for deliverance. Lord, that's our life right now. You know that. And so, Father, I pray that this morning, wherever we have been responding to all of those things in some way other than resting in you, the God who saves, that you would convict us.
And you would give us, Lord Jesus, faith to rest in you and faith to trust you and faith to believe that because you rose, if we are found in you, we too will rise. Thank you, Lord, that this present sorrow and this present evil and this present waiting is not the end of this story. Because in your resurrection, we see our end. And we thank you for that today in Jesus' name. Amen.